0: We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space, where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the Event Horizon. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week as we delve into science fiction and fantasy and science fact in all their forms. And this week, we have with us David Lucarelli. Am I pronouncing that correctly, David? You are. And you're the author of The Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, which is a graphic novel... Uh, from Creator's Edge Press, it's a black and white horror thriller composed of the first four books in the series. And it is—I uh, love the cover. It's very stylish. The story and the the artwork inside are to the point and beautifully done. And let's uh, let's start off with what is the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade and how you uh, how you got involved with the story?
2: Well. I was searching around the internet late one night, as one does, and I came across the story of the Gorbals Vampire. And what that is, is in 1954, in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, in the Southern Necropolis Cemetery, hundreds of school kids went looking for a vampire with iron teeth that they thought had killed a couple of local kids and they brought torches and knives and stakes and this went on for several nights it was considered mass hysteria and at the time they blamed it on comic books so that got me thinking there might be the germ of a good story there and what really sparked my imagination was the fact that the youngest child involved in this was only four years old. And I thought to myself, what would make a four-year-old take a knife and go into a cemetery looking for a vampire? And the answer I came up with was he wanted to protect his baby sister.
0: The caretaker uh, in, the, uh, in the cemetery... Uh, turns out to be this four-year-old well except like 90 years later
2: <laughs> right right over a half century later yeah. um and and the reason why i did that is because i think that if you were four years old and you became a vampire hunter that would sort of define your life for the rest of it
0: Yeah, it certainly would. I love the fact that it's called the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, despite the fact that there really aren't a whole lot of actual children involved at this point.
2: Right. By the time it comes to modern day, all of the original children have grown up, and then the vampires come back. And a couple of juvenile delinquents happen to be drinking in the cemetery on that night, uh, Gavin and Doug, and they unwittingly get caught up into becoming the newest members of the brigade.
0: Yeah, this is really a coming-of-age story for them, too, isn't it?
2: It is a coming-of-age story, and I think what I was trying to get at is that I think The situation young people find themselves in today, where there may be limited opportunities for them, especially if they're coming from a lower class background, and even if they could afford a college education, that's no guarantee of a good paying job anymore. Suddenly, the unsafe options, like going on tour with your punk rock band, or running away and joining the circus or becoming vampire hunters don't seem quite as unreasonable as they might otherwise.
1: Especially if they're vampires on your trail already. I mean, the vampire can get you in the dole queue as as easily as anywhere else.
2: Yes, I, I sort of put them in a position where Partially out of guilt and partially because they didn't have much of a choice, they chose to jump on that bandwagon.
0: Youth in that era didn't have all the choices that, uh, that, that kids have now, even. Uh, if you didn't do well in your forms, you were, you were quickly called out of the educational process. Um, you know, Your future was very limited. If you didn't do well immediately, uh, you're relegated to you know, being a postman or something.
2: Right, right. Yeah, well I yeah. think that's, Your career yeah, that opportunities are very and, limited, and perhaps is true now in in the sense that uh, you know social mobility in a lot of modern Western countries seems to be declining. Mm-hmm.
0: The, the, uh, so who is the artist? who did you uh, who did you get to draw this? and how did you find
2: that person? Uh, the artist is a man named Henry Ponciano. And I found him by putting a classified ad on DeviantArt, um, which it's a little hard to find the classified ads on DeviantArt, but if you if you search for them, they are there. I didn't and know they had them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of hidden on the website, to be honest. But um, I put an ad there, and I was kind of blown away by the quality of talent that responded, actually. But Henry really brought special touch to it. You know, his art is kind of Mike Magnolia influenced, but mm-hmm. he definitely puts his own spin on it and it's perfect for evoking the kind of dark atmosphere that sort of pervades the book.
0: And yet the uh the book is not the the backgrounds uh are not demanding. They uh there's just enough there to really identify where you are and put you solidly wherever the story needs to be at that moment. Uh, the artwork doesn't involve itself to the point where you're going, oh, look at that background. The story just moves right along. It's not uh, It's not trying to take center stage. I appreciate that about the design of the book.
2: Yeah, I think he does a good job of uh, making the art serve the story, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe the backgrounds hint at a larger world outside of the panels. But, you know, another thing I really like about Henry's art is that he's able to draw normal looking 16 year olds and they don't look like they're on steroids or Playboy models or anything like that. Yeah, that's, uh... yeah, they're
1: very ordinary looking kids.
2: Right. Yeah, uh, makes...
1: And I like that about them.
2: It
0: makes them very approachable. You know, in terms of uh, a reader um, encountering these as characters, I think it makes them very approachable. They're
1: very ordinary-looking
2: vampires.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, were you a big fan of myth and legend before you started this?
2: Yeah, I've always been fascinated by urban legends, and, you know, when I was really young, I think I first got involved with it because my family used to vacation At the Outer Banks, and there's a whole series of books that are out that are sort of based on pirate legends and lore about Mm. the Outer Banks, and there's things like The Flaming Ship of Ocracoke Island. I
0: I have never heard of that.
2: Okay, well, to sum up that story quickly, the general story is that there was a captain of a ship ship who was a reformed pirate and he hires a crew of also former pirates and they take out a particularly well to do bunch of passengers and they formulate a plan where they're going to slit everybody's throats while they sleep and light the ship on fire and then get away with their jewels and possessions on the lifeboats mm-hmm. but What happens is they do that, and that night the wind shifts in the storm, so the flaming ship of Ocracoke actually ends up overtaking the lifeboats and killing all of the pirates as well. (laughs) And the interesting thing about this is that they say that on nights with a full moon you can still see the flaming ship of Ocracoke going out to Ocracoke Islands. And the reason why you can still see that is because there is a certain type of phosphorescent red plankton that is particularly augmented by the moonlight, and it tends to drift out towards Ocracoke Island. So from a distance, it looks like there is this red glowing object that's moving towards the island at night.
0: Ooh, so it's sort of a self, uh, self-sustaining story. Because yeah, yeah. you have visual evidence that you can see with your eyes.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of times, it's interesting, the whole story of the Gorbals vampire, a guy named Steve Baines, who does the Horrors of It All blog, which reprints pre-code horror comics, he did a little research. At the time it originally happened, they blamed it on comic books. But nobody could find a comic book from that period mm-hmm. that actually might have been the inspiration. So they, you know, researchers sort of thought, well, it could have been Jenny with the Iron Teeth, which is kind of a Scottish folk song that mm-hmm. warns kids about a, a sort of female boogie woman. They thought it could have had to do with the passage from the Bible that warns of the beast with iron teeth. Well, Steve, who also wrote the introduction to the graphic novel actually unearthed the story called The Vampire with Iron Teeth that would have been from that era, so he probably ended up solving at least the mystery of what the original impetus was to create the mass hysteria.
0: Well, because, you know, a four-year-old isn't necessarily going to be up on all the local legends, but right. he, he might certainly have access to a comic book. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this, this goes straight to Dr. Wortham's tirade in front of Congress and the dreaded Comic Code Authority of the 19... What was it, 1954, 1956?
2: Yep, and at the same time that was going on, there was a movement in Scotland and England to stop the importation of American comic books because they were considered a bad influence on the youth.
0: Mm-hmm. Of course, it turned out later that Dr. Wortham's so-called evidence
2: was all fabricated... He'd made it all up. He'd made it all up, or he had kind of... Cherry-picked a few things. Cherry-picked it misconstrued what it meant. I Mm -hmm. mean, you're talking about a period when 90% of the children at a certain age read comic books. So the fact that most of the juvenile delinquents he interviewed read comic books was simply indicative of all of the children of that period well, not, so they
1: all drank milk too that's <laughs> right they all drank yeah, milk
2: and they all put on underwear so
0: statistically you know. insignificant right
1: yeah uh,
0: that's fascinating about the, uh, the the glowing algae and what other what other urban legends have you heard about uh, do you do you uh, have plans to exploit any more of these for uh, for use in comic book storylines
2: well, let's see I come from Pittsburgh. And there's an urban legend in Pittsburgh called The Green Man, which Mm. is about a guy whose face slid off. And he was electrocuted and he turned, you know, bright glowing green. There is an actual place out in the woods outside of Pittsburgh where teenagers go to drink and make out and stuff. Mm -hmm. And there is a man-made cave that if you look at it from a distance, looks like it is glowing green. And the reason why it's glowing green is because there's a hole in the roof of the concrete man-made cave, and there are piles of rock salt that are in that cave, and they are reflected by the moonlight again, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and they look green in their reflection. So I remember we went there, I think, when I was in high school, and the one thing I'll say about that that leads me to believe there could be something else to it was, interestingly enough, there were cages in that man-made cave that were large enough to hold human beings. So that was a little weird too. Hmm, that's interesting.
0: So what what uh, what what is this uh, green man supposed to be uh, supposed to be doing in the, in the urban legend? What's what's his thing?
2: Is you know, he chasing it, people or. It's all a bit vague. I guess he's just considered this, you know, monstrous-looking man that you probably want to avoid because he probably has ill intent. But I don't think that he's actually – there's no motivation that's necessarily spelled out in the urban legend as to why that might be. I suppose if you get hit by lightning and your face slides off and you turn green, it's probably enough to give you a bad disposition.
1: Sounds <laughs> yeah. like something out of Scooby-Doo.
2: <laughs> right. Right, Yeah. <laughs>
1: And you know, I you'd, actually, got, you'd have
0: gotten away with it if it
1: hadn't been, been for, for those, those meddling, meddling kids. kids.
2: Yes, <laughs> you know it's funny. <laughs> <and> In <their dog. laughs> the new version of that show, they they take great pains to comically avoid that exact phrase. I know this because my five year old son has been watching these episodes religiously.
1: Ah, oh, the classics.
2: Yes. <laughs> But, uh, See, I actually, if
1: you raise your kids in the classics like that, they don't make mistakes about uh, vampires with iron teeth.
2: <laughs> that's right. Because they right. know
1: it's just a crazy old man trying to chase them away.
2: Well, you know, my son actually cosplayed as young Percy at, at WonderCon uh, last month. So. Oh, how fun. I
0: mean, Percy is, uh, is the four-year-old exactly. in the story yeah, who grows up to be
2: the caretaker. He's five, but he can still play four. Yeah, and uh, he got to. He <laughs> extra for that. Yeah, <laughs> he got to sign some comic books. He enjoyed being famous. Cool. Yeah, that's that's cool stuff.
0: So you're a musician as well, aren't you?
2: I am. Uh, I play guitar in a band called Dame Fortune. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of like uh, if you took Kiss and Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and put us in a blender, um, you would die. I do it all the time I don't recommend that but yeah Um, you know but lyrically definitely I take a lot of inspiration from uh, you'd be a Motley Kiss Cruise from Motley Kiss Cruise and also guys you know like we have uh, songs that are based on uh, V for Vendetta the comic and Mm -hmm. Calvin and Hobbes that kind of thing so there's kind of a geek, geek side to us all of which are on iTunes by the way if you want to check us out
1: what's the name of the band again
2: the name of the band is Dame Fortune, oh, which nice. is an archaic term for fate or destiny, mm-hmm. lady luck. Lady luck. Do
1: not mess with her.
2: That's right. But uh, getting back to Urban Legends, I actually had a strange experience while I was making the uh, Kickstarter video for the project. hmm I was mixing the audio for it late at night at 20th Century Fox, where I have my day job, and... Uh, I was walking home, it was about midnight, and suddenly I am enveloped in this pea soup thick Jack the Ripper type fog, can't see five feet in front of me, there's not a soul around. I go to the parking structure to get to my car and the only person I see is this guy who's driving around in an SUV with the windows down blasting opera. In circles. And I thought to myself, you know, if this was a horror comic, I would look at his headlights coming closer and closer to me, and then I would black out, and when I woke up, I would realize that he had crashed into my car, and I had two bite marks on my neck. (laughs) Did so this
1: happen, or did you? Was this Well,
2: that joke? part didn't happen, but okay. I did incorporate the idea that it gave me into the next miniseries, which I'm working on right now, actually.
1: Gee, a ghost and an opera—Who'd have ever thought to put those things together? No way! Phantom of the Opera did. That's right.
0: <laughs> so you started out with one book. Did you? Uh, uh, you obviously had the intent of, of following the story arc out for four books because it's obviously scripted out that way. Yes. Uh, did you start out with uh, Creator's Edge uh, as um, a
2: publisher? or No, what happened was um, I self-published the first four issues, mm-hmm. and um, I sold them at various, about four or five different conventions last year. And at one of those conventions, I met a guy named Travis Bundy, who is one of the two main guys behind Creators Edge Press. And he um, took a sample of the book and liked it and contacted me about doing sort of a co-op deal where Creators Edge Press would um, publish it. And the way they work, uh, if there are any aspiring creators out there that might want to submit to them is you pay the printing costs, basically, and then all of the money that you make from sales goes immediately back t- towards paying that off. And then you split the profits on the book past that once you've been paid for all the printing costs. And it's uh, you know it's an exclusive deal for one year, but after that, all rights revert back to you. Mm-hmm. I got to and-
1: tell you, that sounds... A little anything that involves the, the, a creator putting his own money out, I, I don't know about that. That that sounds well, a little suspicious.
2: Well, the thing is, if you look at the way uh, the deals are structured for any other companies that you are keeping the rights to your own work, they're actually very similar. Like Image Comics. Even if you are putting your book out through them, it's pretty much the exact same deal. You're really? paying up front for the actual cost of physically publishing the book. I see. In,
0: in exchange for not turning over uh, first North American publication rights.
2: Right, exactly. And, you know, they, they do some other things for you, too. They pay for the tables at some conventions, and then your book gets sold at other conventions that you can't personally attend and then you sell some of their books at the conventions you attend so it mm-hmm. does have the effect of spreading your brand a little bit wider than you would otherwise be able to do by yourself
0: so there's a benefit there
2: yeah and they you know they pay for some other promo things like stickers and mm-hmm. buttons and banners and But and it, they,
0: you really have to be committed to the idea that you're going to do this if you're going to use a publisher in this way
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't just say, "Okay, now I'm published and I'm going to sit at home and wait to collect my my checks. But they on the other hand, they also just got me last week a distribution deal through Last Gasp. So Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that is. uh, And and what are they? Last Gasp is a San Francisco based publisher that does comics and kind of underground books and art books and stuff, but they also have a distribution division. Mm. And they also, you know, uh, Creators Edge Press is one of the uh, publishers that they distribute.
0: So this is sort of in parallel to uh, Diamond distribution.
2: Exactly, exactly. And Diamond, I thought I was going to get distribution with them. They ultimately ended up rejecting us. So this is kind of one of the next best things. Obviously, they're not on the same scale as diamond is but well nobody is
0: i mean they practically have a monopoly
2: they do practically have a monopoly yeah and then the book is also available if anybody would like to check it out the first two issues are currently up on comiXology oh yes very good comiXology submit Mm -hmm.
1: so what inspires you what what is fed into you your head to to have this come out
2: um, you know, I've been in, I've been fascinated, I think, by horror ever since I was Your a child's kid. age, yeah. Yeah, you know, I I'm from Pittsburgh and so So what I have,
1: scared you when you were five?
2: What scared me when I was five? Yeah. Um I think the first time I read some pastiches of Edgar Allan Poe and the whole idea of being buried alive, that kind of thing, scared me. I, I remember, I think I was in second grade, and I watched the first Halloween movie. And that night, I think I slept, not a wink, but just held my cousin's hand the entire night. <laughs> yeah, I bet.
0: This is. Uh, I'm. I'm thumbing through the. Uh, I'm a little bit distracted. I'm thumbing through the, the the graphic novel as we're talking about it, and just re uh, reacquainting myself with the story. And, and I mean, this is exciting stuff. It's it's a thrilling adventure.
1: And 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 it's directed like it and lit like a like a black and white horror movie.
0: Yeah, very I really appreciate the high that. Contrast. Yeah, it's the 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 high contrast black and white, it's sort of film noir and page form. And uh boy, it this is tight. This is tight writing. This oh, is thank you. very um and I like the way I like the way that the Scottish accents are actually scripted into the dialogue as written. And it it's uh, it really helps me uh remember who they are and where they are.
2: Yeah, you know, um, I actually used a couple different actual Scottish people as my dialogue consultants for that. And it was, it's a case of finding a happy medium between being completely true to the Scottish accent and completely confusing and confounding the reader or just putting in enough of it that it sounds authentic but the layperson can still tell what they're trying to say.
0: Well, you know, and if they're from Scotland far enough south, you know, it kind of works anyway. Right, right. That's true you get too. up into the northern part of Scotland, and you cannot understand them. Hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, that was one of the reasons, interestingly enough, that Diamond gave for not distributing the book. Is really? That they, yeah, they thought that the Scottish accents might be a little confusing. You know, I don't know. At a certain point, I think that might have just been an excuse. Because, that is an
1: excuse because yeah. you know the X Men <laughs> had accents all along.
0: And, you know, it's yeah. it's uh, that, that's just uh, it's mind boggling. It's like, well, I've got a story that's rubbish related to that. Uh, okay. I was working at Rhythm and Hughes for about the last ten years, uh, up mm-hmm. until two thousand thirteen, and one of the contracts we had was the Nason XB. Well. They'd been doing the Nason XB for probably ten years, and uh, this time around, the uh, the people running the ad campaign decided that they didn't really want an insect uh, as their mascot, mm-hmm. but they couldn't get rid of the bee because that was what the client wanted. So they said, "Can you take the wings off the bee?" because uh-huh. it's too much like an insect.
1: How's he flying? Yeah,
0: well, that was that's what came after. So, at great expense, we took the wings off the bee and re-rendered all of the sequences, and we showed it to him, and the client said, how the bleep is he hanging in the air like that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, at great expense, we put the wings back on and re-rendered everything else, and we build them for it.
1: Great, both <laughs> times. So, <laughs> <laughs> what does that have to do with his accent? Yes. Well, the what what it has to do with the, the Scottish
0: leather. accent is that uh, the the suits in charge don't necessarily have any clue what they're talking about, ah. and that if you take something so basic to the essence of a character out, what are you left with? Mm.
2: Right, right. Well, you you know that story reminds me of the studio note the Fox executive gave about uh, the movie Electra, right? Mm. Which was, does she have to kill people?
1: Yes, (laughs) it kind
0: of defines the character.
2: Well, especially when the yeah, Electra assassin is kind of how she's known. But well, and it's
1: (laughs) she just gives people a really bad day. That's right. That's okay. I remember way back in in the day when they were just getting the X-Men on TV, there was some talk of leaving out Wolverine because they didn't want kids imitating him and scratching each other on schoolyards.
2: Uh Uh Uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh.
1: And he's turned out to be the, you know, the most popular character of all.
2: Right. Much like the Fantastic Four cartoon from the, I want to say, late 70s that instead of having the Human Torch had a robot because they were worried... Little kids might try to set themselves on fire.
0: uh, So that's where that robot came from.
2: That's the story, yeah. It's like
0: the Fantastic Three and a garbage disposal on wheels.
2: Exactly. On the other hand, I've been working on some pretty cool movies uh, lately that I think will uh, be well worth your listeners' time to check out.
1: Are we allowed to ask which ones?
2: You are. I can't give you too many details because, you know, there's non-disclosure agreements and all that sort of stuff. But that said, I've been working a lot on the new X-Men and the new uh, Planet of the Apes movie. Oh, yay. And oh, the, the uh,
0: Was it the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Is that the name of the new one?
2: Well, I just know it as Apes 2 because that's what it says on my paperwork. Right. But. Fair enough. But I've been uh, recording a bunch of group actors doing eight noises for it, and Great. It's, it looks from the bits and pieces, exactly, that's pretty much what it sounds like. Dookie um, dookie! And I gotta tell you, not everything that I work on I, I say good things about, or I say anything about, but uh, I think both of these movies are going to be very well received. Great.
0: Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And this is, again, referring to your work as your a sound gay man, your day job. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. So basically, my day stuff. job is um, I'm the recordist on the feature ADR stage at 20th Century Fox. Wow. So actors and actresses come in and they redo or change your ad lines of dialogue and mm-hmm. post. And I'm one of the guys that helps record them. So. You know, I've got yeah, to work they, on a lot of cool things over the years. I, p- like, I think
0: people would be astonished at how much dialogue is actually looped in after the fact.
2: Yeah, yeah. I um, think there p- are some movies would be that are almost all ADR, actually. I didn't work on it, but my mixer tells me that that was the case with Empire Strikes Back. Really? They looped all of it? Almost all of it, yeah. Oh my god. Wow.
1: Well, the acoustics of a cloud city, you know, that'll just miss.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> wow. That's... I did not know that. Yep. Well,
1: they, 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 uh, the thing about the Star Wars movie is that the sound effects were as, as carefully crafted as the visuals. I mean, you know, Ben Burtt made such a big name for himself in that area of inventing whole worlds of sound.
2: Yeah, and the sound effects are just as iconic as the imagery, for sure.
0: They really are. I mean, the, the, the sound of the TIE fighters screaming along.
2: The lightsabers, Arthur's bleeps, and you mm-hmm. know, yeah.
1: <laughs> and the, the, the non English dialogue of Artu and Chewbacca, which we were expected to follow even though they're, they're no earthly tongue.
2: That's right, that's right. I don't know about you guys, I'm kind of excited about J.J. Abrams taking the helm of the new Star Wars movies.
1: Well, we'll see about that, I guess.
0: He just got all of his TV shows canceled, all three of
2: them. Yeah, yeah. I I the decks. With
0: I suppose so. And I, that might that might be part of why is because they thought, oh, he's not going to have enough time to do the do a proper job.
2: Right, right. Um, actually, I got to work with him on um, the two Star Trek movies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that was kind of cool because I got to record Leonard Nimoy probably, you know, probably the last time he was going to play Spock. So that was kind of. Yeah, That's every cool, time
1: cool. he he retires, you know, and until until he's six feet under, I don't think we're going to believe him about a retirement anymore.
0: Because he keeps showing up on um, uh,
2: Big Bang Theory, you know, right? And then right. he showed
1: up again in the second Star Trek movie. So there we are.
2: Yep, yep. Well, it may not be the exact last time, but nonetheless, it was it was kind of cool <laughs> to. It's uh,
0: probably the last feature he'll do.
2: There we go. Uh, because
0: yeah. the, the work that he's been doing in Big Bang Theory, he's been providing the voice for an action figure. He's, oh, he okay. hasn't. He hasn't been appearing on screen himself. He just goes know. to he, an AVR studio and, and does, dial, does lines.
1: Yeah. And that's your job.
0: Yes. So do you do work for animation as well, or just live action?
2: No, I do animation as well. I did a lot of recording for Rio 2 that just came out, and... Um, Working on the new Peanuts movie that Fox is is uh, working on,
0: which looks absolutely charming. I mean, it does. Their animation, does. the animation techniques in the new Peanuts movie, they try to emulate what they did in the two D animation. Oh, um, really?
1: So it's sort of like the Bill Melendez.
0: Yeah, the Bill Melendez look. style, <laughs> but in three D using three D elements.
1: That sounds weird.
0: Yeah, yeah. And well, in the the motion lines and the happy dance stuff uh, from the the comic strips, they're replicating the look and feel of the original newspaper strips in the way it's presented. They didn't do what they did with the Rocky and Bullwinkle one, which was just turn it into pap. They're actually staying very, very true to the look of the original.
1: Are they staying true to the scripts of the original, too?
2: I think so. I think they're definitely taking their time and... Finding the right voices for each of the characters, because the way those characters talk on all the peanut specials that we all grew up with is actually a very kind of hyper stylized form of speech. And so they're making sure that Charlie Brown sounds like Charlie Brown and all the characters will be, uh, you know, nobody's going to see the movie and say, boy, they didn't get Lucy right, you know. Mm Yeah,
1: We know these characters. We grew up with them.
2: Sure. So,
0: going to your own
2: writing, how long uh, how long
0: does it take you to produce a script for one of these books? Let's just, just uh, take the first chapter, the first comic book that made up this graphic novel. How long did that take you to do?
2: Um, you know, the way that I work is I write the original like first draft, and then I do a, a rewrite on that, and I give Henry two things. I give him... Panel-by-panel uh, panel script and script form. And then I also give him a panel-by-panel panel breakdown. There's a program called Comics Life that I use for that that I actually also used to do the lettering. And that just gives him kind of a rough idea of how the, the thing's going to be broken down page-by-page, panel-by-panel. And then he gives me a rough sketch of a few pages at a time I give him any notes that I might have and then he does the final final drawing inking and then if I have any changes at that point I'll give them to him but usually I don't and then I'll kind of do a final rewrite as I'm doing the lettering because oftentimes I'm able to whittle down the the amount of words, because sometimes they become redundant with what the art is showing or what he's showing through facial expressions and things like that.
0: You do have sort of a, a back and forth dialogue with your artist, taking some of your verbiage and turning it into visuals. Your
1: picture, picture is worth a thousand words, or at least a dozen.
0: And it had exactly, better be, because exactly. it takes up a heck of a lot more disk space.
1: Right. and <laughs> <you> know,
0: <laughs> Sorry.
2: <laughs> at, At first, I was worried because Henry is from the Philippines, and I thought maybe there would be some miscommunications, but my wife, who used to be an airline stewardess that flew to the Philippines, she assured me that the Philippines is actually the most Americanized of Asian countries, even more so in some ways than Japan, and Hmm. that's really proven to be the case. I think...
0: It's actually a a United States protectorate,
2: isn't it? Yeah, right, right. It was or is. I'm not sure. Well, there they was- have
1: their own president now. I think they're not anymore.
2: Oh, right, okay. right.
1: You may be thinking of Guam. I
0: think I might be thinking of Guam. I don't know. You know yeah, it sh- shows you how much I know about uh, <laughs> geography.
1: You know, I think you know the the United Federation of Planets better than you know this planet. Sometimes. <laughs> Love you. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> mean it. Mean it.
2: Yeah. Meanwhile, back in so, the Philippines. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but there was the only sequence that actually I had a hard time communicating with Henry, and I don't want to give any plot points away if you haven't read the graphic novel, but there is a scene where a character pulls out a sword from sort of behind him in the small of his back, and I had a hard time describing that to henry and communicating it effectively so i ultimately ended up just taking a series of photos of myself doing it so that he would see what i was trying to get at
1: how do you hide a sword behind your back
2: well if you're in a wheelchair there's a little space there
1: oh okay that makes sense then otherwise you know you run into this you know magic dimension where swords live (laughs)
2: like in the highlander or something they did it all the time on highlander yeah
1: (laughs) And I face palmed every darn time.
2: Yeah, you had to sort of willingly uh, suspend your disbelief there.
1: Yeah, guys living 900 years, no problem. <laughs> the sword? I don't know, man.
2: Also, you'll notice that uh, the difference between the movie and the TV show is that when they kill a hi- uh, an immortal in the TV show, the body disappears because they didn't do that in the movie, but, you know, being that they're. Basically, killing an immortal every week on the TV show. Otherwise, the back half of every episode would be how Hiding the body. Of the body? Yeah. Right? Yeah,
0: that makes sense. So, what about the locations that uh, that you used in story? Uh, the story? Um, the Did you
1: go to Glasgow and, and scout out their scout s- the
2: locations? Scout locations. <laughs> I didn't do that uh, personally, but I did do. I did go to Google Earth. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, I suppose you can do that now. Yeah. Yeah, see everything in, in three dimensions and certainly researched a lot of photographs and, and things like that. And actually, it's interesting, like the, the Kirkborn sword that's, that's mentioned uh, in the graphic novel, I did research on that. That's actually a real sword. Wow. You know, um, as I was starting to write the, the second graphic novel that I'm working on now, which is going to be called Age of the Wicked, I found an interesting article, which is they've discovered a series of underground tunnels that go all the way from Scotland to Turkey, and they're actually prehistoric. What? Yeah, Does it go and, under
1: the Channel or something.
2: Well, they, they're just you know they're catacombs. They're big enough for basically, you know, a human being to to go through, and they don't really know what the purpose was. They think that it might have just been something that prehistoric man built you know for safety or for transporting goods and who knows it's all theoretical that would mean it goes under the channel yeah (laughs) well i don't know if it's one continuous tunnel or if it's more of a series of networks of tunnels so it may not it may not go under the water i'm not sure about that but it actually ended up being uh something that I was able to use and I'm going to be able to use as an explanation for why the vampires are coming back en masse now wow it's, it's actually they want their in-
1: MTV that's why I don't know
2: yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a hint it has something to do with fracking
1: <laughs> that fracking fracking
2: <laughs>
1: I always knew the North Sea oil was going to lead to tears uh-huh. <laughs> uh, what are you looking up?
0: Well, uh, what I'm looking up is uh I I googled Scotland Turkey tunnels and sure enough there are there are several listings about these ancient uh tunnels that date back hundreds and hundreds of years.
1: That'd be a long walk. I guess if yep, you're a vampire you've got time for it.
2: Right. See, I told you I was not making it up. Yeah, neat stuff. Well, um
1: so when can we expect the next uh, installment out? Either well, either the comic book form or the graphic novel form?
2: Well, um, the first issue is done and in the can, so I expect that I'll be debuting that um, probably at the Ape convention.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I'm not sure on the calendar which comes first, Ape or Long Beach Comic Con or, or Kamikaze, but I'll be at all three of those and I'll definitely have it with me. And as far as when the final graphic novel comes out, I hope to have it done sometime by the end of this year. Great. So that's in the works. And then I'm also working on another graphic novel that is not fantasy-related exactly, but it's going to be about one of the first female police officers called Abigail O'Leary. And the the story is that she wants to be a police officer and the Los Angeles Police Department at the time, they had a few police officers, but they were used primarily to interview prostitutes and do pat-downs of young women that the male officers didn't feel comfortable with. And they weren't necessarily interested in hiring any more than the bare minimum they needed to do that. So Abigail goes to a studio that's kind of a pastiche of Universal Studios. And the thing about Universal Studios is around 1917, they were kind of very much an early proto-feminist city unto itself. You know, they had a female mayor Hmm. and a a female police chief and female police officers and at the same time they were not above exploiting those police officers by marching them in short skirts and parades a la the Siegfried Follies. Oh great, so they're
1: (laughs) mascots as well as
2: Exactly, exactly. So in our story uh, the tagline is going to be Abigail O'Leary was one of the first female police officers in America they forgot to tell her it was never supposed to be for real. Naha. Uh-huh. Cool.
1: So she's she's the real, you know, Irish cop on the beat. She yeah. and and she takes the it,
0: she takes it seriously. She's just not she's not there just to look good in the uniform. Exactly. I'm sure exactly. she
1: does look good in the uniform, especially if this is a comic book.
2: Right. Right. Well, there's that. But I kind of see it as being like Boardwalk Empire meets LA Confidential
1: this idea oh thank you and there was someone like that it was that her name or was this is this another
2: well there definitely were female police officers at universal studio from that period and they kind of existed in a liminal gray area between being real police officers and being just kind of actors that were at universal for the the people that came for the tours
1: oh but but abigail's a an original
2: character. She's an original character, character. Yeah, my mother was actually a police officer in real life in Pittsburgh, so you know I grew up around a lot of cops and have a lot of personal experience with uh, what it's like to to uh, for those people to live that life.
0: Wow, boy, that's going to be really good. I'm looking oh, forward you. to
2: seeing that one.
0: Thank you. Well, David Lucarelli, uh, author of uh, The Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, thank you for joining us on episode 60 of the Event Horizon this evening. I can't my believe pleasure. we're finally at episode 60. Can you, Susan?
1: Mm, I can, because I've been here the whole time.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. In the same spot
1: me. on the couch, and my butt itches.
0: <laughs> you might want to I think get it's up. time to get up.
1: Oh, all right. <laughs> One more episode
0: yeah (laughs) well thank you anyway David for for joining us and uh, we look forward to seeing the next book
2: oh thank you guys I had a a great time thanks for having me
1: we'll see you at the next convention
2: okay sounds good you have just
0: heard episode 60 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 18th 2014 with our guest David Lucarelli, author of the comic book series and graphic novel The Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade Available from CreatorsEdgePress.com and wherever finer comic books are sold. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. This really is episode 60, by the way. We had accidentally misnumbered episodes 57 through 59, so this gets us back on track. This episode will air again on Thursday, May 22nd at 3pm Pacific, 6pm Eastern Time. You'll be able to find this episode and others as downloads on the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.